Good morning. I want to begin this morning with a question that I'll ask you to consider, and I'll tell you, it, it, it may be one of those questions that would be good for you to consider, not, not just here in the moment, but maybe to dwell on it a little bit this week as you go about your week and your days. And the question is this, how much has your life really been affected by Christ? How much has it changed, really? If you're in a relationship with Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, how much has Christ impacted your everyday life? I think sometimes it's easy for us to convince ourselves that if before Christ I was a relatively good person, then after Christ it can be a relatively small change. We use this philosophy all the time when it comes to evangelism. Right, we talk about evangelizing, we talk about spreading Christ to the people that we know, and then oftentimes we'll convince ourselves, you know, I've got this neighbor, he's a really, really good guy. He, he loves his family, he's a, you know, he is a responsible person. I'll share Christ with him because if he obeys the gospel, it will be a relatively small alteration to his life. Maybe you've heard a phrase like that before. Maybe you've uttered phrases like that before. Although I understand to a point what we're trying to get at with phrases like that, I think we miss the reality that our life before Jesus and our life after Jesus are drastically different lives. Drastically different lives. You know, I'm continually struck as we study through the Gospels, whether it be Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, any of the Gospels, and you, you come across these everyday interactions that people have with Jesus. And, you know, Jesus had lots of interactions. He had interactions with huge crowds. He had interactions with uh, people one-on-one. -on -one. But one thing that is striking to me as you study through those interactions is to see that the people, after they have an interaction with Jesus, the significance and the impact of that interaction on them. It's massive. It is huge. And oftentimes I think about in my life, has he had that same level of impact? I'm going to ask you this morning to be thinking about that. As we study an interaction that Jesus had, but this, the resurrected Jesus, has with his disciples and specifically Thomas in John chapter 20. You know, the story of the resurrection, as was read for us here at the very beginning of John chapter 20, is certainly an, an interesting one. He is certainly there on the earth for several days, weeks even, and he had interactions with lots of people. The Gospels paint a picture that even very quickly, very quickly, Jesus had specific interactions with people. And there are five specific occurrences that are told to us that happened very quickly after Jesus' resurrection. Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20 that we had just read. The other women in Matthew chapter 28. Peter in Luke chapter 24. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, and the disciples minus Thomas here in John chapter 20 
an interaction that Jesus has with them very soon after his resurrection. It is in that story and in that context that I want us to spend some time this morning. And so as we have read in John chapter 21 through 9, the resurrection of Jesus, I want us to spend the rest of our time in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, his interaction with the disciples once minus Thomas, once with Thomas, and the truths and applications that we can pull from it. But before we do that, we'll once again welcome everyone for being here. What an exciting time for us. Here on the Lord's Day to be together, they have visitors with us, and we are certainly excited to have you with us this morning, visiting with us, worshiping God with us. It is the one thing, the one thing that matters in this life, our relationship with God. And on this wonderful, wonderful day, an incredible opportunity that God has provided us with a day like this to dedicate to him, to the sacrifice that he has made for us, to all of the promises that he has made for us, an opportunity that we can come here together in this beautiful place with all of these beautiful people and praise him and worship. And I certainly have been uplifted and encouraged by our worship this morning, and I am excited about our opportunity to open up his word and to study from it, and I pray you are excited to open up God's word with me this morning. Let's do so by reading. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, I want to paint the picture just for a moment uh, as we think about what's happening here. I, I made mention that there are several occurrences of Jesus having interactions with people very quickly after his resurrection. Five specific occurrences, and this is one of them. We see at the very outset, the very beginning of this in verse 19, that at the same day at evening on the first day of the week, he goes to where the disciples are. But it's interesting to paint the picture of where they are. They are gathered together. That's good. They were probably you know, gaining some courage just by being with one another. But we find out that they are together, gathered together in a house, in a house, not wide open, not wide open to the elements, not wide open to the outside, but securely shut up, locked even. Why? Because of fear, fear of the Jews who had just taken Jesus and killed him just a few days before. And they're probably thinking, will that, will that happen to me? Will that be coming after us next? And so there, they are together. They are there. They are shut. They are locked in a room. And Jesus shows up. The text makes it seem as if he doesn't knock first. 
It's Jesus. Here I am. It's not that. He doesn't unlock the door and come on in. He just is there. And I want us to begin to paint the picture of what this interaction does. Because what you have is you have disciples who are afraid. They're afraid. They're fearful. We know that because the text tells us they are. They are fearful of the Jews. That's why they're locked away. But yet I want us to understand, and we're going to see why here in just a minute, a couple of steps that were taken, that Jesus in an interaction with him can take us from this fear to a level of courage. It can happen very quickly. It certainly did for them. There are three things that happen here in this text that Jesus does for these disciples that he also can do for us. And the first is kind of what we've been talking about. He comes. He comes to them. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, it's the way in which he comes. He doesn't come with a rebuke. He comes with compassion. Now, why why would you say, why would he be there with a rebuke? Well, let's consider for a moment the last time the disciples were around Jesus and how that went. You see, Jesus is being drugged away. He is being shepherded from one sham place to the next. He is nailed on a cross. And his disciples who were there when he was arrested have run away. They've run away. A couple watch from a distance, but the others have run away. And here they are now cowering in a room. And the very next interaction that they're going to have with Jesus isn't heavy-handed, isn't a rebuke. His first words to them, peace, peace be with you. And I want us to see that this is Jesus. He is one of love. He is one of compassion. And he is that all the time. Now, I want you to plant that into your mind because we're going to come back to it here in just a minute. But I want you to plant that this is the picture of Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he is about. And so when he has these these disciples who are fearful, who are scared, but he wants them yet to be somewhere different, How does he get them there? Well, number one, he has to come. He has to be there for them. Secondly, he reassures them. How does he do that? What does he show them? Immediately, he shows them his hands. He shows them his side. Why? Well, he was giving them, giving them an opportunity to see for themselves that it was him. They knew that he had been nailed to that cross. They knew that he had been put into that tomb. And here he is standing in front of them. What's really interesting is he showcases these wounds, which will certainly come into play with his interaction with Thomas here in just a moment, is now that these wounds mean so much more than just simple identification. It's now evidence of the price that's paid. And because of this, what happens? Verse 20, 
He said he showed them his hands, he showed them his sides, and the disciples were joyful, were glad when they saw the Lord. And so now you start to see this reassurance that Jesus provides. We're building to something. And so he comes to them, he reassures them, And now that he has moved them to this level of joy, he commissions them. And for us this morning, this is going to be our biggest application piece. He he commissions them. Think about what he says. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. The reality for these disciples was certainly the fact that at one time, very recently, they had forsaken him. They had fled from him, but now he was sending them out to represent him. Now let's do some thinking this morning. Let's do some deep examination this morning. Deep examination is hurtful. It always is. It always is. Any cursory examination, you can deal with it. But something deep hurts. I was with, uh, I was once had a a little spot on a finger that I had to have removed. And uh, I go to the doctor and, you know, I've had, uh, you know, splinters in my finger that you maybe get a little needle out and work work the splinter out or a little scratch on your finger. And that's not super pleasant, but there's not big pain involved with that. But here was something I had to have removed from the finger. And, and so I'm there at the doctor's, and we're having a conversation. And he says, all right, listen, let's, he, he says, I want to be frank with you. And I knew right away this is a bad deal. I mean, right, when he says it's a bad deal already. And he says, listen, he goes, this, what I'm going to remove from your finger is deep. I've got to go in pretty good. And I said, well, is it going to hurt? And he, I'll never forget this line. He goes, it's, it's no good. It's no good. Like, is that, is that the medical term for that? I mean, it's no good. It's no good. And he said, listen, I can give you a shot to numb your finger first. And I said, let's do that. Let's do that, right? That sounds great. He goes, listen, a shot's no good. I'm like, well, I mean, what's worse? I said, is the shot worse than digging that thing out of my finger? And he goes, I don't know. I don't, I'm like, you don't know? What? Like, you should know this, right? And so I, I said, well, surely the digging out is on it. The nurse was there. She was really entertained by the whole conversation. She's like, I wouldn't get the shot. Just go straight for the digging out. And I'm like, I think I want the shot. And she's like, no, the shot's bad. I'm like, oh. But I end up getting the shot, and it was terrible. It was no good. But, but then he's digging in. But, you know, the point is, listen, that's what examination is. The deeper we go, the more it's going to hurt. That's why we don't like to do it. And, and sometimes when it comes to examination of the heart, that's what God's Word does for us. It digs. It digs in. And it digs deep in. Sometimes we like just to set it aside because that hurt. I'm not interested in it digging that deep. That hurts. I'm going to ask you this morning to let it dig in a little bit. And I want you to do so with this question. 
You see, Jesus is laying out for them something that we're going to see play out, certainly in the book of Acts, that now these men who have fled and who have run away, they will be the very ones representing him in every capacity. He's here with them now, resurrected from the dead, but in just a short time, he'll be gone physically for good. And they'll be on their own. So the examination for you this morning is this. As a Christian, if you are here this morning, as a Christian, how are you representing Christ? How well are you representing him or are you representing him at all? I want you to think about it in a couple of different ways. Let's start with where we're sitting here in worship. To me the easiest of places to represent Jesus, the easiest of places. But how well have you represented him today in worship? What if there was someone sitting next to you today who doesn't know Jesus? They're visiting with us. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. How in our worship have you represented him today? Have you represented him well as we prayed together? Have you represented him at all as we have sang praises together? What about in your life at work? What about at school? How well do you represent Jesus? To me, it is the deepest level question that we're going to have today. Because it answers everything on how much I believe in him. Now let that hang. Let's get to Thomas. We're going to tie all of that together. We love this story of Thomas. Thomas certainly hasn't come into play yet, but he does. Let's read his interaction with Jesus. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. Verse 24, we learn that Thomas is not there. He's not there at this first interaction. Now verse 25 of John chapter 20. Then uh, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that happen here at the outset. The first is this. I want us, you know, and understand, I do understand it, but how often have you heard this passage and Thomas specifically made mention as doubting Thomas? Right? I mean, everybody. I've heard it a billion times, right? My, the entirety of my life. The word doubt does not, it doesn't say anything about his doubts. 
Nothing about his doubts at all. Jesus in no way is pointing to his doubts, but he points to his unbelief. That's where he points, not to his doubts, but to his unbelief. And then certainly it's so easy for us to convince ourselves, well, it's, it's doubting Thomas, right? He, he, he doubts. He doubts right here because that's what everybody calls him, doubting Thomas. No, he's unbelieving Thomas. And you might say, well, what's the difference in those two, two things? Well, I'll tell you, they are closely related. They're closely related, but there is some difference. Doubt says, I, I cannot believe. Because there's just too many problems. That's what doubt says. Unbelief is I will not believe until you give me the evidence. Those are the two things. Well, how does that play out in the real world? Well, I'll give you an example. If I were to say to you, I can run a mile in less than seven minutes. I know there were some giggles. I don't, know, I don't know, know why. But if I were to say to you, I can run a mile in less than seven minutes, you may answer, maybe, but I doubt it. And you would say that, if that would be a, a, something that you would say in your mind, maybe, but I, I doubt it. I mean, the maybe part is because I'm standing upright. I have two legs. They move. People run under a seven-minute mile all the time. Maybe, but I doubt it because your physical obstacles are too large to overcome, right? That's what you're saying. The doubt is there because the obstacles, as you look in my direction, are just too many. Or you could say, when I tell you I can run a mile in less than seven minutes, you may say, I'll never believe that unless you do it in front of me. There's no maybe about it. Even the smallest of maybes, it just isn't there. I just won't believe. Now, both of those are issues, spiritually, for sure. Both of them are issues, But yet with Thomas, it is his belief that Jesus questions. But again, what's interesting to me is how Jesus handles him. Now, we don't know why Thomas wasn't with them the first time. We we don't know. We're not told. I mean, I I was doing a little bit of reading this week, and uh, lots of people have speculations. Lots of people. If you want to know some reasons why You can find some reasons why. I'm not going to list them out for you, but there are bunches of them. It could be anything. We're not told. We we don't know why. We just simply don't know, but he wasn't there. But he is now. But yet this interaction that he has with Jesus, after the other disciples have told him, we just saw Jesus, you missed him. He was here, you missed him. And Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe that. I need to see the evidence. I need to see the evidence. I'm not going to believe it. I need to see the evidence. Eight days later, Jesus is there. What does he do? Shows him. Gives him what he needs to move from that spot of unbelief, which is so dangerous, to a place of belief, to a place of confidence. 
You see, Jesus had an incredible interest, a personal concern even for Thomas. He wanted Thomas's faith to increase. He wanted to include him in the blessings that lay in store. And we've got to be reminded today that Jesus reacts to sin. Here's the reality. Every single one of us, every single one of us here, Every single one of us, no exceptions, lives by faith. Every single one of us. We believe in something. We're living according to something. The difference is the object of that faith. The object of that faith. Some, I hope most, if not all of us this morning, are living by faith based upon God and his word. But if you're not living by faith in that, you are still living by faith, but this time it is living by faith in yourself. Living by faith in yourself. Now let's go back to our question of deep examination. How well or at all am I representing Christ? Here's the biblical reality that we simply don't like phrasing it this way because it sounds really bad. Is that if you are living a life, a life of representation that isn't all about Christ, if you aren't representing him in your life, if you don't have a great relationship with him, if you don't put him first in your life, if he has very little to do by way of impact in your everyday life, if he has very little to do in your life and the impact of it, you do not believe it. You certainly don't believe in what he said. You don't believe the promises that he's made. The scary reality is as simple and as frank as God has been with us in his word and the direction that he wants us to go in and the promises that he has made to each and every one of us, if we are living a life contrary to that, We are living a life in our mind where we say God is a liar. Because if we believed him, we'd follow him. If we trust him, we'd do what he said. Now, we don't like to say it like that because it sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. But if you are living a life contrary to the will of God, you think God is lying. There is no other explanation to it. Because if you believed him, you'd follow him. You would. Because he's the only one that holds the key to eternal life in heaven. And if we went around the room this morning... And I ask, hey, do do you want to spend eternity in heaven? What would everybody say? Everybody. Everybody would say, yes, I want to spend eternity in heaven. Everybody would say that. Well, God has given us the direction 
the direction that it takes to spend eternity in heaven. We believe that or we think he's lying. There's only two options. When I see this passage in John chapter 20, and I, and I see these disciples who, who, number one, were changed from fear to courage in this first interaction with Jesus. Thomas, who was changed from unbelief to the confidence that he had to proclaim even, to testify that God, that Jesus is Lord and God, my Lord and my God. An incredible proclamation I'll add a little tidbit that the Gospel of John includes over and over and over. It's one of the main reasons he writes this book, to showcase Jesus' deity. And there are proclamations made directly to that throughout his Gospel, this being the last of them, my Lord and my And so for each and every one of us, changing from fear to courage as Thomas changes from unbelief to confidence. But this text, this book really closes by an invitation for another change. We haven't read it yet, but look at verses 30 and 31 as we close in John chapter 20. Right after this interaction that Thomas has with Jesus, John throws this in. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's the stamp, the concluding stamp on this book. And what is the invitation? The invitation that it is Jesus, the Jesus who invites us to be changed from death to life. Think about all the changes we've talked about this morning. Great changes. From fear to, from fear to courage, from unbelief to confidence, from death to life, all changes made possible with an interaction with Jesus. Impact from a relationship with him. What a powerful lesson in John chapter 20 for each and every one of us. Questions of examination to make sure our relationship with Christ is where it needs to be. That's where Thomas was. That's where the disciples were. They had answered that question. And for us this morning, we've got to do the same. And Marcus is going to lead us in a song of invitation. It is a perfect opportunity following along exactly where we've been to think about that very thing. What is your relationship with Christ? Have you allowed him to have an impact on you? Your sin which separates you from God, Jesus has made an impact on that. By sacrificing himself on the cross, spilling that blood, that through that blood, our sins can be forgiven, putting us in a relationship with God. What a powerful impact that is. Or maybe you've not been representing him well. Maybe you've not felt that full impact in your life that Christ is to have, and you have stepped away from him. What a great opportunity to come back. Think about the Jesus we read about in John chapter 20. He is a Jesus of compassion and love and openness and will be willing to help in any way that he can. And maybe we can help you this morning. If we can, you let us know as we stand and sing. Oh.